little season will be the last period of time that we spend in the book together before we reach the end. We have made it all the way through just about. There's two chapters to go, which is really significant. It's been, uh, I was looking through my notes today. We started in 2021, early 2021, so it's been about two and a half years from go to woe. Um, so why don't we read our passage for today to get our head in the game, and then we'll circle back around to remind ourselves what we're hearing. Uh, today we'll be in the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 1 to 7, which says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Oh, that's bad news. <laughs> Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragements of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It's a great passage, isn't it? What a, this is, what, a, what a reminder of why our time in Romans together has been so spiritually fruitful. Um, Just a quick reminder of what we're reading, I suppose, is worthwhile, because it has been so long since we spent any time in the book of Romans together. What has been happening in the book of Romans? The major part of this letter has been to define and to defend the gospel, the central message of, of Christianity, at great length. God has explained to us through this letter that we need him, because of the problem of our sin, and that the way for us to get him is by grace and through faith in the resurrection of Jesus, not by works. And then in chapter 12, the message pivoted, and we began to explore the implications of a grace-based salvation. What kind of life does the gospel create in us? Romans 12.1 said this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so since then, we have been exploring not just the concept of how it is that we become saved, how it is that we become Christians, how it is that we gain God as our Father, but now we have been exploring the life that we are to live as those who have become the children of God. How are we to worship Him by his mercy. God's good news, this is, the, this is the idea of Romans 12 onwards, God's good news creates in us attitudes and behaviors. It transforms us and produces spiritual fruit. Our lives look different to how they looked before we had met Jesus. In what way? We've heard a number of them. We've heard the call to become part of the body, the church. Um, we've heard the call to show mutual love toward one another. We've heard about prayer, and hospitality, and the call to forgive those who wrong us, 
the attitude of desiring to cooperate with legitimate authority and to live peaceably with all so far as it depends on us. We've learnt about the lives of holiness we are to live. These are all implications of grace. If, if you are going to approach God by the grace which comes through Jesus, all of these things are going to increasingly become part of your life. There are a lot of implications of grace. The last sermon we heard was the entirety of Romans chapter 14, which was a little more complicated. It was an exploration of a theme that perhaps we don't spend too much time thinking about. The idea that having received grace, part of my showing it to others is that I encourage them to obey their conscience under God. We saw that the God of the Bible has a high view of the conscience, surprisingly high, because it turns out that when it comes to living a life of obedience to God, He cares about the motivation of your heart. The God who knows your thoughts before you think them, who knows what you will say before you say it, cares not just about what you do, but about why you do it. And as a result, your conscience has a lot to say about how to conduct yourself as a Christian. To the extent that, if my conscience says no to a thing, it is a matter of worship that I do not do it, even if I'm a little bit wrong in the details of my belief. That principle goes shockingly far. And today we pick that theme up again. It was worth exploring. Uh, but we view it through a different lens. This time we take a laser focus on the relational implications that this principle brings. We read these first two verses. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And there's the principle. There's the call to action. There's the setup. This is the destination, the kind of living that we are going to arrive at by the end of today as an inescapable conclusion. This is how Jesus would have all of us live. Let's be precise. Let's think about the kind of issues being considered here. There are some issues, some arguments that exist within the church that we as Christians are meant to fight about. There's a right time to fight. You are not going to be able to convince me that Jesus and the Apostle Paul were afraid of controversy in the church. Read again. If a church starts teaching that Jesus is not the Son of God, we oppose them in order to honor God. And that is not a sinful disunity that is necessary. There are some things which we as Christians are meant to fight about. Then there are some things that if we fight over them, shame on us. They don't rise to that degree of importance that they require conflict for any reason whatsoever hey, you don't sing my favorite song here. I don't think the world is going to end, if that is the size of the complaint. I don't like the color of the carpets. Well, we only put them in here recently. They're not changing. <laughs> Matt got rid of the organ. Doesn't rise to the level of spiritually significant conflict. No fighting over these things. This is not the sorts of things where churches should enter into conflict. We must behave ourselves in these matters. 
the issues in mind in Romans 14 are neither of those. They are issues which are important. They are spiritually serious questions. They have implications for our lives, and they have a right and a wrong answer. And yet, what we're seeing is if someone gets that answer wrong, we don't immediately go to war over these things. No, the right response is to offer tolerance and patience to one another on account of the conscience. And there are a great many things in the Christian faith which should land for us in this kind of atmosphere. The example given to us in chapter 14 is a fun one. It seems that someone had connected a vegan diet with their faith. For this uh, person in this church in, in Rome, or a group of people, uh, it's hard to tell whether or not their concerns were connected to Old Testament food laws or completely unrelated, but they had concluded, I do not feel free to eat meat on the basis of my being a Christian. For them, honoring God felt like a thing which called them to a vegetable-based diet. Paul says of these vegan Christians, they're wrong, categorically. They are more free than they believe themselves to be. It is not true, ultimately, that all Christians everywhere need to be vegan. In reality, they are free in Christ to eat meat. Christ has laid no such burden on their diet. And yet, he says, they should obey their conscience nonetheless as a matter of worship, and the rest of us should be gentle with them. Surely we can imagine such a thing becoming controversial in a church today. In, in your time in, in churches, have you ever experienced something like this? Have you ever been to a members' meeting where one voice is speaking up, bringing their concern to the rest of the church that they do not feel free to take part in something that everybody else is cool with? Surely that's happened at some point in your life, if you've been around for any length of time. Or perhaps you've been in a worship service and someone has come to you afterwards, uh, afterwards and said, um, I had a strong negative reaction to one of the songs that we were asked to sing together, not even necessarily because of its context, content, but perhaps just merely because of who wrote it. And others feel free to sing because the content was good. Um, this sort of stuff has come up for us here at Inogra in both directions when we have done ministries that called us to partner with other churches. Um, sometimes we have been... Um, partnering with churches who were narrower than us on some of the details. When we preached through Romans 14, I brought up the example of a church that did not feel free to take communion in the context of anywhere but a local church gathering. And so when we gathered together, they didn't want to take communion with us because that was their understanding of what the symbol is for. Yet we felt free, freer than them. And then at other times, we've been the narrow ones. I remember Mike telling me as they were getting ready for the Young Adults Conference last year that it was, it was some of the song choices going into the worship time where perhaps they were songs that we had chosen not to sing here that some of the other pastors were wanting to add. What today's passage does is it brings to my attention how it is that I should treat you in that situation, and that's true of all of us. That's how you should treat others. To the person with the offended conscience, 
The content of Romans has said, obey your conscience. But what about the other person? The person who has to live with the person with the offended conscience. The person in the position of strength. The person who is comfortable, whose view of their Christian freedoms isn't bothered by what is going on in our time together. That person is the main application in mind in our passage today. To the person in the position of strength, your question is, how should I treat you when I think you're wrong about something that falls into that kind of category? Specifically, it's this. Why does it even matter what my attitude is towards a person with whom I disagree? Can't I just do what everyone else does? Can't we just go social media war meltdown on each other every time we have a slight disagreement about some detail of church? Why do I have to live with them? <laughs> They're irritating. I don't like them. Can't I just cut them out of my life and never talk to them again? Wouldn't that be easier for everyone? They keep telling me I can't do things that I know I can do. Why don't we just go separate churches over this and then the problem's over. We don't, we don't need to interact the command here in Romans 15, it takes those options away from us. Do you see it? We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. It's an obligation. The strong here are those who are more theologically correct in the argument. The ones with the more mature faith the ones who have better understanding, and those people have an obligation to bear with the weak. An obligation. You are obliged. It is requisite. It is necessary. It is important that you bear with. Be patient with. Not give up on and certainly not exclude over these kinds of differences. But rather, we are called to continue to patiently include, to build up the weak. Why? What is so distinctively Christian about behaving like this that it is an essential part of being a living sacrifice? Why, why do I have to behave like that? Why do I need to continue to live in relationship with vegans? I'll tell you why. Verse 3 and 4. For Christ did not please himself. But as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance... And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So here it is. The reason why this kind of behavior is necessary is that it is exactly how Jesus treats us. Did you realize that we are wrong about a great many things when it comes to our God? We do not yet understand him perfectly. And each and every one of us have assumptions and preferences living within us 
that run counter to God's will for our lives, and they are, they are just that, assumptions and preferences. And because that's what they are, we are oblivious to their existence. You've had them your whole life, and hasn't the process of your discipleship thus far been slowly discovering them as God reveals them to you and transforms them one at a time? If Jesus was like us, wouldn't he find us just so irritating? He would grow increasingly exasperated. Actually, sometimes we even get hints that he did, right? You faithless generation, he says to the Israelites a few times during his earthly ministry. What are you doing? But if he was like us, after time, he would hold us in contempt, look for ways to socially distance himself from us, to remove himself from our presence. How dare they not understand my freedoms and be narrower than me? If Jesus was like us. But no. Christ doesn't live to please himself. To please himself. Isn't that an interesting way to talk about Jesus? Christ doesn't live to please himself. We know that our God is joyful. Hopefully you know that. We serve a happy God. He's all on about pursuing his joy. And his highest joy is in pursuing his bride in order to glorify himself. And so there is a sense where Jesus absolutely lives to please himself. That's what's weird about this. Jesus is pursuing the happiness of Jesus. He is operating out of joy. And yet, his joy is not a selfish joy. It is an overflowing and redemptive and a generous joy. It is a joy which makes our God willing to be put out for the benefit of others. And so he does not live to please himself in the sense of shallow, selfish gratification. The Old Testament and the New Testament together stand in showing us that this is what Jesus is like. We have a a quotation from the Old Testament here. Psalm 69 verse 9 says this, "For uh, For zeal, for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is a verse from the Old Testament, which the the New Testament writers apply to Jesus in a few places, actually, and to do a few different things. But here it's being used to describe how Jesus lived during his earthly ministry. And how did Jesus live? Jesus lived for the Father in such a way that anyone who hated the Father also hated him. If you reject me, says Jesus, you have rejected the one who sent me. Jesus willingly chose to live in this way so that you and I could be welcome in the Father's presence. It has its ultimate fulfillment in the cross where Jesus, in the process of being vilified by those who actually opposed the one who sent him, 
willingly was nailed to the cross. And in doing so, has he not rescued us all? That's where my sin was defeated. That's where life was won for me. That is where my rescue and my redemption and my hiding place come from. In a sense, Jesus lived for what he wanted most. Zeal for the Father's house had consumed him. But that didn't mean living for himself in comfort. It meant a cross-shaped life and a cross-shaped death. And that choice of his is the center of our entire faith. Brothers and sisters, if this is how you have been treated by Jesus, who was without fault, how could we, who have been rescued, live in any other kind of way? How could we go on, having received such a gift, to live lives of self-centered comfort, to turn the church into a plaything for my pleasure? to live in a way which leads us to exclude brothers and sisters whom we find a bit difficult, souls for whom our Jesus died. There is a higher call of self-sacrificial love that we are obligated to show to one another, obligated by the blood of Jesus, the way in which we have been rescued should be giving shape to how we live. It should be giving shape to what our church looks like. And what comes next in our passage is a picture for us of what that kind of living creates. Verses 5 and 6. Actually, a pretty great benediction. We should use this one. I like it. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever been in a room utterly filled with Christians, like a, like a large gathering, like bigger than a church kind of gathering during a worship time when brothers and sisters from all over the city, the state, and the country have gathered together and are singing in unison with one voice. How glorious it is. Here is the positive picture of what is created when you and I choose to live in this way by the grace of God. God, the God of endurance and comfort. Isn't that a great name for him? Of endurance and comfort. Comfort's a great old word that means making someone strong. It's not like your comfy couch. It's come and fortify. Come and build me up. The God of endurance and comfort, may he grant to you the next part of this. It's a gift. It's a thing that comes from him. It's a thing we can't do without him. But would that God create in us the possibility, the reality of us living in harmony with one another? Living in harmony. 
isn't harmony a great word there? The, my girls just went to a, a concert last night. A, a string orchestra was playing it in the city. The grandmas took Flo and Elise because Flo's decided to, to learn the violin. What a great opportunity. Harmony. When the, when the different notes played by the different instruments are ringing out in such a way that they, they complement one another, they, they increase the unity and the beauty despite their differences. Would we live in that harmony in accordance with Jesus? And that's the important detail for us to get to, in accordance with Jesus. What we're being called to, brothers and sisters, is not just an ill-defined unity for the sake of unity. What we're being called to is a unity that is all about keeping in step with Jesus, who he is, what he says, what he has done. That is the kind of unity that we are hoping to achieve. This, this little bit here speaks so clearly to one of the most obvious misunderstandings of what we have been saying so far. And it's this. The dominant culture in church right now tends towards being broad in an unhealthy way. There have been various times in church history where narrowness was the main problem. That is not our time. The dominant culture in church right now tends toward being broad in an unhealthy way. I bet you that I could travel through a hundred churches I've never been to before, preaching this sermon up until now, calling for loving unity, and I would receive no pushback in any of them. This is an easy sell. Calling people to stand on the word is harder to do, and in the present moment, more rarely done. Which means that calls for unity can be misunderstood in light of that culture. There have been whole movements trying to get churches to work together by losing their distinctive beliefs and embracing a kind of lowest common denominator version of the faith which rushes to see how many edges it can shave off the teaching of Jesus. And without exception, those movements have created spiritual desolation in their wake. If you would like to kill a church or a denomination, go that way. Don't argue about theology. Just get along and help people. Have we heard this? Don't oppose wrong behavior. That will cause disunity. And the people who want to think like that have loved to call this way of living unity. People who care about principle and know why it matters have been shifting uncomfortably in their chairs the whole time I've been preaching today, remembering every time in their life as a Christian that some church leader has given them an obnoxious or condescending talking to about unity. Whilst overlooking something of greater significance. That view of unity is not unity. No, actual unity is created by our doing two things together. The first is having Jesus and all that he has said clearly at the center of our fellowship so that we all know that we have a shared faith. 
Unity isn't what brings us together. Jesus is what brings us together. And because we all have him as our highest goal, we have unity. Do you understand? So step one, have Jesus. Live in accordance with Jesus. Clearly at the center. The gospel needs to be clear and explicit and defended as a part of creating actual unity. And then step two, within that context, each and every one of us needs to come into this relationship with an attitude of gracious patience. I need to be willing to go without some of the things that I like, things that I feel like I have a right to them, for your benefit, if it would help to build you up in Christ. Because church is not about me. It is about Jesus. And if you want to have a united church, you cannot compromise on either of those things. On either of those things. It's not an either or. It's a both and or else. When we hold both of these things together, what does it create? What does God use that to achieve? He uses it to create a group of Christians who together with one voice glorify their God. Together with one voice. Don't you want to be a part of that kind of church? I know I do. A united church is a beautiful thing and it is a peaceful thing. We don't have to waste all of our energy on silly controversies. (laughs) We have a shared faith and we can get on with encouraging one another and being encouraged by our brothers and sisters. A church like that is a church which brings blessing to those who are involved. And what is more, a church like that is a clear demonstration of what God is doing in this world. It is a picture of heaven for those who perhaps have yet to meet our God. It is an aid to our efforts to explain Jesus to people. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at these people who know him and see how they're different to everyone else. The difference is what God is like. That's what it's supposed to be. It's a place where I can grow and I can heal and I can belong and I can contribute. It's something that I can trust. Likewise, how painful is it? when churches fail to have this kind of unity. It's probably worth my saying, Anogra, I think you do this really well. It's one of the reasons why I'm so glad to be a part of this church. This is a happy church. And I think that that is because this describes us pretty well. We're not perfect, it's not a boast, it's gratitude. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that here. How precious it is. We need to know what it is that we have, (laughs) and we need to protect it at all costs. It wasn't always like this. Just ask those who've been here the longest. And that unity can vanish in a moment. 
have been appalled in the last month or two, talking to any number of my pastor friends at the moment, and hearing the grief of what is going on in their congregations. Churches who should know better, consuming themselves. There are a lot of new faces in our church at the moment. I want you to know how blessed we are in this church. And I want to invite you to come in with the same generosity of attitude that the people here have been showing to each other for so long. It was hard won. It was very costly to get here. And it has been so, so very life-giving. And so come, come and join us in such a way as to continue that blessing and to benefit from it. Our passage today finishes with a clear call that summarizes everything which we have said today. It simply says this. Therefore, whenever we read it, therefore, you've got to think about what you've just heard. On the basis of all of that, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What do you need to do in order to live that out today? Let's pray. Our Jesus, we thank you so much this morning. First of all, we thank you for the welcome that we have received from your hands. That we were far from you. We were, we were your enemies living in blindness to the destruction behind us. And you have brought us near. You have washed us. You have made us whole. You have rescued us from the consequences and the eternal sense of who we are and what we were doing. You have rescued us from slavery to spiritual principles which held us captive before. You have brought us into your Father's house. And there we have become the sons and daughters of God. Yeah, our God, we are not part of your family. <laughs> because we were amazing and you needed us. We have been welcomed undeservingly and unconditionally and irrevocably. What a thing that someone like me could boldly enter the throne room of grace. That I could come expecting a welcome and never be disappointed. Such a precious thing. So Father, help us to fix our eyes on you in such a way that it transforms how we live. Help me to welcome others in the way in which I have been welcomed. If I have some reconciling to do after today, Father, give me the courage and the, the grace to do it. If I have some encouraging to do, to, to pull someone aside and to say, Look, I've seen you doing this and I was just so proud of you. If I have some new people to include, to make them feel at home in the way that I've been brought in and made to feel at home. Give me the, the sight to see them and the energy to do it. And Father, may it never be. 
may it never be that we would divide over the unnecessary. And at the same time, may it never be that our faith in you would be compromised and that we would worship something else in your place. We need you for that. And so would prayers Paul for us be your prayer for us. Would you do this thing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.